Hear the word of our God. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that even these short verses would be richly used by your spirit this day. Grant truth and clarity to the one who speaks and bless those who hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We confessed uh, with Bill already in this service. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only King and Head of the Church, which is made up of those throughout the world who profess the true religion and their children, over which Christ reigns through His Word, the Bible. We believe that the purest congregations under heaven are prone to both inconsistency and error. And some have so fallen as to be no real churches of Christ at all. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. We believe the primary means God uses to convince and convert sinners and build converts up in holiness and comfort are his word read and preached prayer, and the sacraments. Uh, These words echo the Westminster Confession of Faith. Echoes the wrong word. It's a paraphrase. We just updated a couple of words to make sure we were being as clear as we could, but it comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in these words, uh, the Puritan view of the church is put forward. Um, I think that's important because sometimes in our day, some conservative Christians long to go back to the Puritan days when all was right in the church. And there, there, there was never any trial or lack of peace in the church. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we want to go back further to the early church fathers. If we could go back to the way the church was under the early church fathers, then all would be well with the church. And if you want to understand the official Puritan statement on the church and how they would have responded to that mentality, this is it. Uh, so much so that um, the, with very few changes, the Baptists who, who were reformed wanted to express their standard of what doctrine means, and they basically copied this. Word for word, they wanted to show their agreement that the the Puritans, whatever your view on baptism, was that this is the church. And what do they say? Oh, if only we, in this hard day of being Puritans, could go back to the early church. All would be well. No. They said the purest church under heaven is filled with mixture, that's inconsistency, 
and error. We wish it wasn't so. But the reality is the only pure church is the church in heaven. In our day and age, I I don't know that we can honestly say these words reflect how we view the church. Um, Certainly the evangelical church, these words wouldn't well express what the evangelical church in America thinks. But but I, I want to challenge you before I critique that to even examine yourself. There's what we would confess and nod our heads to. You look at it on the paper and you say, yeah, that, that seems biblical. But then there's the way we act towards others in the church and towards the church itself. And I'm not sure we really believe in action these words because we act as if we think the church really could be pure, perfect now. And we are the standard of that perfection and purity. That's why we have uh, what one author has called dating the church. Uh, Going from a church to another church, never settling down, never joining in its body with a a commitment that this is where I am going to be. No, I'll I'll be here for now, but then I'm just going to move on. Like on a date, right? You, You go out and as long as the benefits of dating this person outweigh the negatives of dating this person, you keep going out with them. But at some point... There might be a newer model out there. There, there might be someone who looks better out there. There might be someone who, who really appreciates me better out there. And so I'm going to just break up and move on and, and never move into a, a full commitment. I think that's a, a very uh, real reality in the evangelical church. And then there's a, another thing in the evangelical church that is uh, very popular very praised, and that is just leaving the church. It's such a noble thing sometimes to have such doubts that you would just abandon the church altogether. And so about a decade ago, the the popular, I'll call it a group, that that was expressing that or, or doing that was the emergent church. Groups of people who together were choosing to leave the organized church and be organic church. Usually what that meant was you ditch the leadership and uh, just be less official. Two things happened to those churches. Either they were so uh, leadership-less that they dissolved with time and aren't here anymore. Or, or they formed new leadership that may or may not be biblical leadership. Excuse me. Uh, but that was 10 years ago. Now the, now the popular evangelical way of leaving the church isn't even in a group. It's by yourself. You deconstruct your faith. You come to the conclusion that you may still love Jesus, but you don't love the church. And so you leave the faith. It, it always ends in that. It always ends in that. Even when the party says, I still love Jesus, 
you end up abandoning not just the church, you end up abandoning the Bible. And if Jesus is still a part of your life at all, it's this vague image of yourself. I, I do not think in the evangelical church, words like what we confessed earlier really speak to how we think about the church. But it's such a good way of thinking about the church, isn't it? It's balanced. It, it says that there can be a more pure church. That gives us something to pursue. You, you don't give up on it. Some churches cease to be churches. Okay, if, if you honestly can say you're looking at your congregation, you've maybe even taken membership vows, but you, you can honestly say it has ceased to be a church of Christ at all, as that confession states, then, then you're right to leave it. But I, I think there's a lot of moments up to that point when it's just not perfectly pure, but it's still a church of Christ. And the question is, are you part of it becoming more pure? That's how we ought to be thinking of our place in the church and our part in the church. Well, well all this I put before you as, as backdrop to thinking about just two questions from two verses. And I, I really don't think we're getting to the second question or the second verse today. But I thought we were going to when I was writing the sermon. Here are the two questions I want us to think about in this, this context of thinking about the church and its purity. And they may not seem like they relate to, to all of this that we've already said at first thought, but they, they do relate. The questions are these. Why, why does Titus need to be given the apostolic greeting? And, and secondly which I doubt we'll get to today, when would the work in those churches be done? Why does Titus need the apostolic greeting, which is verse 4? And when would Titus know that the work in these congregations on Crete is complete? Why did Titus need the apostolic greeting? We read that in verse 4, in case you're not aware of what the apostolic greeting is. It's what you hear every week, right at the beginning of the service, most weeks. There have been times I forgot it. Or we've had a guest preacher and he hasn't done it. But typically we hear it. I don't usually use the one from Titus. Titus is, is slightly longer than some of the ones. In fact, most of the ones Paul gives to churches are shorter than what he says here in verse 4 to Titus. Look at what he says to Titus. He addresses Titus, the recipient of the letter, Titus, a true son in our common faith. Common there does not mean unspecial. It's just common, ordinary. It means the faith of the church. The faith once delivered to us and held by all believers. Right? It's not an individualistic faith. It's the gospel, our common faith. So 
Titus is addressed, and then he's given the apostolic greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's one of the longest titles you'll ever see of Jesus, isn't it? He piles all of the titles of Jesus together in one thing. He's the Lord, King, their sovereignty. Jesus, the one who will save his people from their sins. Christ, the Messiah. And he's our Savior. Titus knew all of that. But why does Titus need one of the longest apostolic greetings? Why does he need an apostolic greeting at all? Paul knows that Titus is a true son of the faith. Paul has used Titus because he trusted him as a faithful minister of the word. He had sent him to Corinth with a letter to set things in order. That means he was a trustworthy commissioner for the apostle. And he must have not done too shabby of a job in Corinth because now Paul sent him as a commissioner again to set things in order on Crete. So he's a man that Paul knows has experienced grace. He's a convert. He's a real believer, says Paul. Why does he need grace, mercy, and peace? There's three simple answers to that. Titus needed to be reminded here of grace, mercy, and peace because Titus is a sinner. Second, Titus needed to be reminded of these things at the outset of this letter because he is a commissioner to sinners. And he is to set the churches, congregations full of sinners in order. Live holy as God is holy. It's not an easy commission. And third, Titus needs this apostolic greeting set before his eyes at the outset of his commission because he is to go to these churches of sinners and establish elders who are also sinners. Titus really needs this apostolic greeting, doesn't he? Originally, that was going to be the point. I was going to be done there. I've given you the simple answer. He needs it because he's a sinner. They're sinners. And and the elders he's appointing are going to be sinners too. Uh, And then I was going to move on. We're going to move to the next point. But I think I want to stop on this point today. I I think it's important. I uh, I was thinking earlier last week as I was working on this sermon The hardest thing about working with the elders at this church has been that they're sinners. And then the Holy Spirit pricked my conscience. And I remember G.K. Chesterton and how he he wrote once to uh, uh, an essay column, please send your essay answering the problem. What is the problem with this world? And the Holy Spirit pricked my conscience with G.K. Chesterton's answer. And I realized in the past seven years, the hardest thing about working with the elders of this church has been that I'm a sinner. I'm the sinner. That, that's the hardest thing. The second hardest is that they're sinners too. And the third is that we're trying to shepherd, honestly trying out of love to shepherd you sinners. We need grace, mercy, and peace, don't we? I think we speed over the apostolic greeting and you might just let it gl- just be glossed over every week when you hear it in worship. Because we think grace, mercy, and peace, we, we think of the moment of conversion. 
you know, the, that unbeliever, they need grace, the gospel, and, and may they be saved. And certainly we, we absolutely need transforming grace, the grace that converts us and brings us into a saving faith. We, we talk about that as regeneration or the new birth, the Holy Spirit making me dead, now alive. <coughs> Excuse me. Alive to God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? We didn't need grace that day we first believed. And, and now it's just a fun thing to sing about and look back on. We need God's grace every moment of every day. <coughs> Excuse me. I apparently need God's grace just to be able to speak this morning for a sermon. We need his salvific grace. We need his transforming grace. We need his sustaining grace. And his sanctifying grace. I want to be very clear before I continue with the sermon that if you've received one of those, you will receive all of them. So that when I talk in a moment about sustaining grace, you need to understand that it's, it's not that there's this huge group of people who have been saved and only some of them get the sustaining grace to not fall away. No, if, if you've been converted, if you've been born again, God will complete the good work in you until the day of Christ Jesus. So sustaining grace comes to every believer. But isn't it true we, we see in daily life, sometimes we harden our hearts and sins, and Christ lets us backslide for a while to humble us. Now we know that if you've been truly saved and you backslide, God hasn't let go. And He is going to draw you back. I, I um, was thinking a lot about a, a couple of people this week, and I'm going to tell people's stories a little bit more than I usually do in a sermon today. But um, here's the positive one I'll start with. Uh, when I was in high school, I got to assist... Uh, a, a couple in uh, youth ministry to, to middle schoolers. And so there was this woman who uh, was a good friend. She was, you know, she was an adult woman. I was a high schooler assisting her in this youth group ministry. Well, she fell away from the Lord. She backslid. She fell into sin, impenitent. She ended up being excommunicated from the church. That day when I heard that announcement, Declared to the congregation, my heart sank. I was uh, so sorrowful, and I thought she was never really a believer. That's what I thought. God showed me. I was I was barely out of college. She she was in a different part of the country then. She had come back to the Lord. He'd drawn her back, and she'd reached out to the church to make sure that we knew she'd repented. And, and was sorrowful for those sins. And she was restored publicly. And it was a beautiful thing. About a, a year or two later, I had the difficult task of writing and asking friends and family for seminary support. And I hate doing that. 
give me money. Uh, the day before, I had to force myself to stop procrastinating. So I was saying to myself all week, Saturday, that's all I, ha- I have to do it. Friday in the mail came this note from this woman. She said, Nathan, I, I heard through your father that you were going off to seminary, and I want to be a part of this. And there were 12 checks in that envelope dated for the first of every month of my first year of seminary, like 25 bucks. It was a lot of money for her, and it was a lot of money for me. But that wasn't where this person that once I thought had never been a believer, but God drew back. That wasn't the last time I encountered her. I was moving my grandmother-in-law into a, a nursing facility. And someone said, hi, Nathan. And I turned around. I didn't even recognize her at first. She'd moved back to the area and become a, a custodian at this nursing facility. And at that nursing facility, she has led a Bible study that included people I love and people who have never heard the gospel. Bible studies going through Ligonier video series like we use. This woman has been so used by God. And at one point we thought her faith was all a lie. God's sustaining grace. He doesn't lose those whom he has saved. Christ said so. None whom the Father has given me will be lost. Go and read John chapter 6 to meditate on that a bit. Well, well, if that's the case, we can just presume that if I've really been saved, God's going to carry his grace through. So why do I need the apostolic greeting? Why does Titus need it set before him? I want to share someone else's story to this point. I hope it's not an ended story yet. But um, a a man wrote a book in 2004. I already kind of referenced it. The book's called Stop Dating the Church. Let me just, so you get a flavor for this man's writing. Let me read a, a few sentences from the first chapter. In Stop Dating the Church 2004, Uh, You read, the church community is where we learn to love God and others. Where we are strengthened and transformed by the truth from the word. Where we're taught to pray, to worship, and to serve. Where we can be most certain that we're investing our time and abilities for eternity. Where we can grow in our roles as friends, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, The church is the earth's single best place, God's specially designed place to start over, to grow, and to change for the glory of God. That's why I tell people that when they stop dating the church, they're finally getting started on experiencing all the other blessings that Jesus promised to his followers as the fruit of the truly abundant life. If you read that, wouldn't your thought be that this author is a true son of the faith? Joshua Harris, ten years later, publicly announced that he was leaving the faith 
because he stopped believing certain things that the Bible taught. I don't know all of his story, but part of that story was he started believing the world's sexual ethics, and therefore the Bible's sexual ethics didn't fit. And here's the reality. For years he'd been receiving hate mail. He'd written a lot of things publicly about sexual ethics, right? Most of you probably know him from his non-dating books, right? His courtship books that were very popular. And whatever you think of those, the reason he wrote them was he believed in the Bible's sexual ethics. He may not have applied what that needs to look like perfectly. You can disagree with him. I don't agree with everything he wrote there. But his premise was that the Bible's not unclear. That God created us to be sexually pure and therefore not to sleep around and to be uh, serious about relationships. And he received a lot of hate mail for those books. He also wrote what I consider a, a wonderful book. I keep it on my shelf where I can see it for this very reason. It's called Sex is Not the Problem, Lust is. Obviously on sexual ethics. From a biblical perspective. I keep his book sitting there even though he's rejected the faith. One, because the book on lust and the book on the church are good books. They tell the truth as the Bible teaches it. But also so that I can pray for Joshua Harris. And for his former wife and for his children, and for the church that had this sinner denounce everything he'd taught them. And you'd better believe some sinners, all of them are sinners, remember, some sinners in that church may have walked away from their professed faith because their pastor did. I, I can't imagine it wouldn't be that way. This is a very serious thing. I, I keep those books there where I can see them so I can pray for them. I also keep them there to humble me so that I pray for God's continued grace, mercy, and peace. Because for years he had received hate mail. You ruined my life, Joshua Harris. But because of you, I didn't experiment. Because of you, I denied my true identity. Because of you, I just married this person without having slept with them, and now I've realized I hate them because they're, I don't know. I assume the thing is they weren't good enough in the bed or something. And so now I'm getting a divorce and my children are suffering, and it's your fault. You are a mean, hateful man. And for years, he weighed the world's truth hear the air quotes there and the Bible's sexual ethic and at least outwardly he said I have to follow God not man God has spoken and he is right but at some point that shifted so that he said I no longer believe the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God and therefore based on the Bible itself I am an apostate and not a Christian. 
I appreciate that he was so honest about that. And that honesty is part of why I so passionately pray for him. It gives me a little glimpse of hope that he at least understood somewhat what the Bible was saying. Titus needs continued grace, mercy, and peace. Because you'd better believe Josh Harris isn't the only person who's ever gotten hate mail. He may not have gotten paper mail, but Titus got hate speech showing up. You've read about the Church of Corinth, right? Showing up at the Church of Corinth with that letter. You've read the letter. And saying, we're setting this in order. Do you think everyone walked up to him after church that Sunday and said, you're amazing. We love you. Everything you say is right. Now, who do you think you are? You're not even from around here, Titus. And you're telling us, you, you don't speak in as many tongues as I do, Titus. And you're telling me. And then, he, then Paul sends him to Crete. I really wonder if Titus ever thought, come on, Timothy got to go to Ephesus. The Apostle John's the other pastor in town there. And now I'm getting sent off to Crete with the evil beasts and lazy gluttons and liars. That Sunday didn't go any different. Who do you think you are coming in here and telling us how to live in our culture? Calling us beasts? You're not so perfect yourself, Titus. You're ruining my life. Titus, at the outset of this commission, desperately needs to keep front and foremost grace, mercy, and peace. He's sure not going to get it from all those sinners. He needs to remember where it comes from. From God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He needs it. Every preacher worth anything needs to have the apostolic greeting before him when he writes any sermon. When he sits down at any counseling meeting, grace, mercy, and peace to sustain, to sanctify, and to uphold. And so do you. One of my examples was of a lay Christian. The other was of a pastor. Every lay Christian needs the grace, mercy, and peace of God before their minds and hearts constantly. Constantly. We need to remember what he's doing. And then ask ourselves... If God is actively sanctifying me by his grace, is that more powerful than the people tearing me down? Does the mercy of God toward me have more power to it than the hatred of others? And is God's peace enough 
to rule in my heart and mind when everyone else is going to war against me. Because that's how we think, isn't it? Part of our failure to view the church rightly is sometimes we think even the whole church is against me. I think you've, most of you at least, felt that way at some point. No one else cares about the holiness that I care about. No one else cares about the purity that I care about. No one else cares about being evangelistic like I care about it. We're wrong whenever we think those things, just like Elijah. Just like Elijah. God has his faithful people. But when we feel like that, the question is, which is more powerful? The disappointment you have in everyone else. The, the fights and conflicts that you have with everyone else. Or the grace, mercy, and peace of God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We, we know what the answer to that is supposed to be. I am a sinner, and I'm preaching to sinners, and I work with a sinner. We need grace, mercy, and peace. I think there is something truly amazing about biblical worship. On the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, the day when our Messiah Christ proved that death had no dominion over him, when he stepped forth from that tomb, proving that the grace he claimed to offer was enough. And when he so mercifully and graciously spoke to those sinful people who had abandoned him two days earlier and said to those disciples, peace to you. On the first day of the week, we come together for worship. And how does God start worship? He calls us and then he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He gives you what you need as a sinner to worship without fear. To worship and know that he can drive out all those other fears from your heart. And as if that wasn't glorious enough, the apostolic greeting is bookended. It's the one bookend. But when we come to the end of worship, he gives us almost the exact same thing again, doesn't he? He sends us out with his fatherly benediction. He sends us into six days of labor with the thorn and the thistle with childbirth, with all of the fall ahead of us, all of the hatred 
that this society would offer us. And he sends us forth once again with those words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He mixes the language up a little. The love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the, or, I'm sorry, the, the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But what is that all saying? It's saying grace, mercy, and peace. We need this desperately. How wonderful to remember that he gives it to us every week. To start the week. And to strengthen the week ahead. Well, the, the second question we didn't get to. When would the work be complete and creed? That's a question that also relates to our opening about the purity of the church. But the first thing we need, and enough for us to chew on today, since no congregation under heaven is perfectly pure, how can we serve God together? How can we stick with each other? How can we endure the hatred of the world? The grace, mercy, and peace of God, which comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thanks be to God.